What's up, everybody, and welcome to Decision Time. I'm Misha, and I speak with product and business leaders about their unique approach to decision-making. Each episode features a new leader where we discuss a recent product launch, we'll learn about their business, the unknowns leading up to the launch, and how they manage their time to ensure success. Let's go. Hey, everybody. Very excited to have today's guest on the pod. Daniel Ferry from Moody's. Danielle, welcome. Hey, Misha. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very excited to have you here. I've done some KYC work in the past, never at the level that you have, obviously. So I'm very interested to hear about product management in the KYC world. I'd love to hear a little bit of background. What does your product team look like? Maybe we'll start there. Sure. Yeah, maybe it helps if I first just um, help understand what Moody's is or Moody's Analytics. So most people know of Moody's as the rating agency that rates debt. However, uh, in 2008, we actually carved out of that business what we now call Moody's Analytics. And so on the analytics side, we sell data analytics and software solutions to help our customers make better, faster decisions. So within the Moody's Analytics sphere, I'm part of the business unit that we call KYC or soon to be, I believe, rebranded as compliance and third-party risk. And we're about, uh, I think it's three or 400 people in the US and in Europe, and we are on a mission to transform risk and compliance, uh, where a world, a world where risk is understood so that decisions can be made with confidence. So what does that actually mean? Um, we are very mission-based. We're very proud of the fact that the work that we do ultimately helps stop bad actors, whether it's corrupt politicians, or money launderers, or terrorist organizations, or human traffickers to be able to move their money around, to be able to uh, hide illicit activity and the financing involved with that, and ultimately prevent those bad activities from happening. Um, Within the organization, I'm responsible for the product strategy piece of the business. So in our case, that means I look after commercial strategy. How are we gonna grow the business? what we call core product strategy, and that's specifically called out to differentiate from new product innovation, where we have a team of over 40 people responsible for what we call Horizon 2 and Horizon 3 innovations, specifically building brand new things from the ground up. Um, And as additionally, I have UX, both strategy and uh, practice under, under me. Thank you for that context. And when we say KYC, you and I know what that means, but can you elaborate a little bit for the audience? Good point. KYC stands for Know Your Customer, and it's we're, we use the term pretty broadly. There's lots of nuances, KYC, Know Your Customer versus AML, Andy Money Laundering, uh, Customer Due Diligence, we say CDD. It kind, what we do kind of encompasses everything about understanding who is it you're doing business with, what are the risks of doing business with them, and then finally, how can you address those risks at scale using modern scalable infrastructure and tools? Thank you. Okay, so very interesting that you lead the product strategy group. I like the way you gave us context with respect to how you think about core product strategy, notably thinking about Horizon 2 and Horizon 3 innovation. And that's a great segment to the first question for the pod, which is how do you think about prioritization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the critical question, right? And in being really impactful about growing your business, particularly when you have limited resources, which everybody has. So I will be perfectly honest, this is a evolving practice within our team. 
um, we do like to take a very iterative approach to everything. So we try something and then we, you know, we'll change it and we'll adjust it and we'll um, see what might work a little bit better at the edges of, or even big changes. We have uh, in the innovation space, we have developed a first version of a scorecard uh, to help us to identify for any brand new ideas that are coming in, assessing things like what's the business impact, you know, how much, how well does it fit into the, you know, the body and the mission of what we like, what we think we are good at? Does it leverage our own competitive advantage? Does it fit in with what we are trying to achieve as a business? Uh, you know, how feasible is it? We're also interested in, is it, you know, is it something that we can chunk up and deliver in small iterations? Because we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where we embark on a one-year, two-year product build and then, you know, find out that it wasn't really what the market wanted. So there's a whole number of considerations that we take into, you know, that we look at. Uh, we do score it. We're Moody's Analytics. We like to score things, but we also view that as kind of loose guardrails for, for, for rank ordering. To be honest, one of the big challenges, I think, even going beyond the prioritization is, particularly in the innovation space, what I'm really interested in is that you need to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall in order to hit on the best ideas and the best solutions for your customers. We haven't actually done that, I think, as well as we, we should. We tend to um, start in on things that we already have a fair amount of confidence in, and I, I really want to see us start a lot of things we don't have a lot of confidence in and just in little segments. Um, and therefore the prioritization remains important, but it's not as important if that makes sense, because if you can just try a whole host of things in two week increments, uh, you know, it, it becomes less critical that you have perfectly prioritized everything. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. There's always a balance between experimentation and business case analysis. It's always helpful to have some framework in mind. It sounds like right now you'd love to do more experimentation. As you think about that shift to being more iterative, let's say you launch an experiment. What are the type of things that you look for, you want your team to look for to know whether to pause the experiment or to keep going? The, probably one of the really important things, which I'm sure will not come as a surprise to you, is making sure that you start out having success metrics defined before you do anything, right? And, and then, of course, honing those success metrics to be things that are, in fact, measurable and, you know, truly get at the, the root of, of, of success and not our just vanity metrics is really important. But we do focus a lot on making sure before we start, we kind of know what we think is going to, you know, uh, push us on to the next phase or not, or to say, no, this isn't working or we should pivot this. And that's probably the most, most important thing. Yeah, I agree with that as well. And can you give an example of what would be a good metric and not a vanity metric? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what we're doing and which stage we're in. But we we do, we do like to use NPS where possible, net promoter score. Um, getting enough sample size for that to be meaningful can be a challenge when you are starting off with just a prototype and, and particularly in the B2C business, uh, B2B business, where there's only a fixed set of enterprise clients you can go out and try to, you know, get feedback from versus B2C, where it's almost infinite. You could, you know, you could easily shoot for hundreds of, of feedback of customers to engage with. In our case, that can be a little bit of a challenge, but we do like to use that as a 
indicative, you know, are we going in the right direction or not? We do a lot of user research though. So some of it is just more, you know, uh, what's the opposite of quantifiable? Qualitative. Qualitative, thank you. Uh, where, you know, we're doing user research, we're putting a prototype in front of clients and, you know, we have really good qualitative, you know, feedback on whether we're hitting the mark or we're not hitting the mark and, um, you know, how, how excited they seem about it, what kind of questions they ask you. Know, obviously, if they're asking you, like, how much are you going to charge for this? And that happens when we're showing them literally just a prototype that doesn't actually work. We know we're onto something. Because you think about heading down this path of being more iterative, that implies having to democratize decision-making a bit amongst the team, right? Because you want to give them the freedom to run with things and try things. So how do you think about that? Yeah, so in the innovation space, we have pretty well-defined, you know, ways that we work, the process of stepping through the innovation funnel, the sorts of activities that we expect to happen at each stage of innovation, and and then, um, you know, stage gates. And then, you know, assessments at each of the stage gates, we also have pretty well-defined, you know, again, guardrails is a really perfect word to, to dis describe what we are generally speaking looking for to say we should move on to the next stage. And empowerment is a really important piece of this. So, you know, it's largely kind of left to each squad that's focusing on something to do the first pass and then kind of summarize it up to the next level of management and look at it. And, and it, it's pretty rare that we have done something like that. And, you know, my team would come to me and say, you know, here's what we did. Here's what we think we should do next because the evidence is X that I would say, you know what, that's complete nonsense. I disagree. You shouldn't do that. And usually also they have been in contact with me throughout the process. So there aren't really any big surprises. When you get outside of innovation and you get more into more broadly core core product strategy and the commercial strategy and, and the business strategy of, you know, which direction should we be going in? There's a, you know, we, maybe we've identified there's a big hole in our offering. And so therefore, how are we going to fill that, that gap? It gets, it becomes, I think your, your question becomes a little bit more interesting because now we're talking about needing alignment across the entire business unit. And the way we're organized is I, in product strategy, sit across the business unit as a unifying layer, but then we have pro verti product verticals that are responsible for individual product lines. And so we have to then start to bridge the gap across the leaders of all of those or, uh, pieces of the organization as well. And that's where, you know, this distributed decision-making gets gets interesting, gets gets challenging. And... I don't know that we've perfected that. I start, well, I know we have not perfected that, but it, it, you know, really important is I think bringing people along on the journey and, and getting feedback throughout so that everybody is on the same page. And when you do finally get to that place where you know we're, make, we're making a recommendation for what we think we should do, again, no surprises. Um, people kind of know and they've had input into into what you know turned into that, and it involves a lot of kind of side meetings and meeting before the meetings and, uh, you know, relationship building to make sure that we're all on the same page. But when it comes to that kind of level, it's, it's really not so much a distributed decision-making just, um, process as much as it's alignment across senior leaders that cover many different parts of the business. And do you use anything to facilitate that in terms of tooling or process? 
It's mostly meetings. We do use a, we use a wiki to document a lot of meeting decisions and just thought processes. It's a way for us to, it's one way for us to actually have these asynchronous conversations with one another because we can write something down on a wiki and then people can comment on it. And you can see, I mean, I, w- I work with a lot of Europeans, so I wake up in the morning and there's, you know, a whole host of comments that have been made. Uh, that I have to catch up with, but then it, you know, it allows us, you know, when they're on, they can do that. When I'm on, I can do that. And we can still kind of go back and forth. We also use Slack pretty heavily, but um, we don't, we don't really have a sort of product prioritization tool specifically that we use. And the scorecard, is that something that's managed in Excel? Yeah. Yeah. I'm embarrassed to say that because I hate Excel, but yes. That's where many people still manage things like that. Okay. So in uh, service of great decision-making is time allocation. If you had to describe it for the audience, what would you say a typical week looks like for you uh, if you had to parse it out between you know, time spent with, with leadership and time spent with your team and maybe time spent with customers? Hopefully somewhere in there is just the ability to think and do some heads down work. How would you characterize it? Mm, I'm still working on the right mix. I've recently shifted things a little bit because I was spending a lot, a lot, a lot of time with my team, which of course has tremendous benefits um, for the team, but less diminishing returns for me because to your point, head down work, strategy work, I I just, I found myself with no time for that. So I've actually recently kind of cut back on some of the team time, um, more delegation, more empowerment, more um, confidence that they will, you know, come to me when they need to meet, when they need to, they need input from me rather than like a regularly scheduled, we're going to check in on this particular thing every week or every month. Um, so I would say nowadays I, I do get probably, I don't know, maybe I'm making this up 20% of my time for that kind of heads down strategy work. Um, I don't spend enough time with clients. I, I, I think everybody in product strategy should be spending, you know, I think at the beginning when I first took this job, I had a goal of I should be in at least two client meetings a week. I don't do that. Um, It's also, in fairness to me, not entirely up to me. I need to kind of insert myself or get invited to them. Uh, I do find that I I get invited more often to the big strategic client meetings um, or where, you know, you need to march in the MD and have them express, you know, uh, interest in the relationship and dedication to making things work. I think we should, I you know, I want to be in more meetings where it's just pure understanding what their needs are. or maybe I don't say anything. I just listen. Um, yeah, I think so. Certainly, a lot. Probably at least well over fifty percent of my time is in meetings. It's a combination of you know sometimes clients, team members, uh, leadership. Uh, I spend a lot of time not only with my team but also with my peers across the organization. And I talked about earlier, kind of meeting that alignment. I think maintaining those relationships is really important. In that time spent with your peers, is it all alignment or would you classify it further? Some are alignment meetings, some are you helping to resolve bottlenecks? The regularly scheduled ones with my peers are more around alignment and just making sure that we, you know, keep each other up to date on whatever things we, you know, 
did you know about this? We, I think it's important for you to be aware or let's talk about how we can work through this. I think when it comes to bottlenecks, we do really try to have a culture where we avoid that kind of up and over sort of conversation. But of course it does, it does happen sometimes. Uh, but, and that would be more of an ad hoc situation. Yep. And so the last question I have for you is, is there anything that you want to maybe plug for the audience? More than happy to plug things for, for my, and my team's doing really interesting, exciting things. And like I said, at the beginning, we were quite proud of the fact that we think it's stuff that has real world impact. Um, so there's actually two kind of related things that my team is actually kind of launching, just launched or in the process of launching, which are very exciting. Um, they both leverage the fact that we have this really comprehensive information about companies and who owns them. And then we connect it all so that you can build out these really interesting kind of network graphs for who is connected, whether it's people or, 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 or companies. And in the current environment, you know, Russian Ukraine war, for example, massive amount of sanctions coming out every single day. Not everybody knows, but not only can you not do business with somebody who is sanctioned, you can't do business with somebody who is um, sanctioned, what we call by ownership, meaning um, they might be owned by a whole host of different companies or owned by a host of other companies. But when you look at it, somewhere at the top is a sanctioned person. And that ultimately means you can't do business with them. And they what they'll do is like a Russian oligarch will deliberately obscure their involvement in a company. Um, and we're able to uncover that. So that's one thing that we're, we're really excited about. We're putting out there, you know, again, kind of preventing people from hiding their involvement um, that in, in that sort of situation. And then related to that is we're developing and about to launch a shell company indicator. So again, it's about, um, you know, being a shell, having a shell company, being a shell company, it's not illegal, right? But it is, and there are legitimate reasons to have one, but it is also a vehicle that people use to hide and obscure the involvement of bad actors or just disreputable actors, people that you don't really want to be in business with. And it's, it's hard to find them. Um, but again, because we have this really comprehensive data and we can, can make all these connections, we can look for typologies. So for instance, you might see that on a given day on just one block in London, 40 companies were registered and they all have names that are like XYZ Corp, XYM Corp, XYA Corp. And they all are either on the same block or the same address. Um, they might, and then you, know, you might see things like they um, have a director who is 18. And remember, this is registered in London, but they are a resident of or a national of Macedonia. That, those are all kind of red flags that would indicate maybe this isn't a real company and maybe there's, you want to dig, dig deeper. So a lot of things that we focus on are kind of highlighting these signals of risk that then lead our customers to want to dig deeper and, and determine for themselves, is there actually something shady going on here that we don't want to be involved with? Very interesting. Well, I really enjoyed diving into this world of KYC and, uh, and AML. Thank you, Danielle, for helping us learn a little bit more about it. And I would love to have you on the pod again in the future to see how the approach to being more iterative is going and learn more from those findings. Thank you for joining. So happy to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you're a product leader and want to be featured on my podcast, send me an email. It's Misha at onchassis.com. You can also find the address in the pod description. All right, till next time.